Psalm 1957, 1957 to 64, hastening after God and His Word. 11957. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I entreated your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we might consider you our portion, that we might not be engrossed and even uh, misled into the world and into the traps of the world, but always keep our minds on heavenly and eternal things. May we know that all we need is you, all we need is Christ, all we need is your Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us in the right path. Give us this understanding and grant us by your grace the, the work that we need to do in order for us to please you and glorify you. In Christ, amen. Well, in this psalm, in this portion of the psalm, in verse 57, he is drawing our attention to the Lord. And we see in the middle of it, he's going to call on us to be hastened with our desire to know the Lord, to please the Lord, and to do his will. In verse 57, he says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. When he uses this phrase, portion, my portion, he's talking about his inheritance. He's using the analogy of the Old Testament distribution of the land of Canaan. When the people of Israel conquered Canaan, they were given portions, inheritances in the land of Canaan, according to their tribes. But there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that, that, that did not receive a territory. They received cities and they received the offerings of the Lord and they were told that the Lord was their portion, that they should put their confidence in God for all of their needs. But what they experienced there was not merely for the, their physical life and for their longevity in the land of Canaan. It was there as a symbol and a representation of spiritual things. Just as God had set the Levites apart and He provided for them based on the system of the Levitical priesthood, God would also provide for us in spiritual things. It was meant to be a picture of eternal and heavenly things. The psalmist in Psalm 73, he understood this, just as David does in our psalm. Psalm 73, verse 25. Psalm 73, 25. He is, and this is a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph was among the Levitical singers. He was a Levite. And in this song of Asaph, it says in 73.25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Here, this Levite, when he's praying and singing to God, he's considering God to be his portion. In this life and in the life to come, that's all he needs. He need, knows he needs God, and God will give him an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 12. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, after explaining that we are adopted children of God, and being an adopted child, we will receive the inheritance of our Father, of our spiritual Father. In Romans eight seventeen, he says, And if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. If we first suffer in this world, we will be glorified with Him in the world to come, and we will be joint heirs with Christ. What Christ inherits, and He inherits the whole universe, we will participate in that, we will enjoy it with Him when He creates a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, for David, David exclaims, The Lord is my portion. He's saying, All I need and all I want is you, God. He's, he knows that his mind is fixed on the right purposes of life. He's not focused on the things of the world. He's focused on the Lord. And because he is focused on the Lord, he knows, verse seven, uh, 57... I have promised to keep your words. Because God is all to him, he has promised to keep or to obey the words of God. If God is all to us, why should we want to keep or obey anybody else's words? Naturally speaking, when we have made Christ our, our everything upon our conversion, we have declared that Christ has died and, and risen for our sins. We have confessed our sins. We have said we want to forsake them. We've done all this and we've said, You are my heavenly inheritance. All I want is you. Once we say that, the natural response is to keep his words. To say, I will follow Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. If we say we are followers of Christ or disciples of Christ, learners of Christ, we want to do whatever he wants in our life, then we should keep his words. We must be convinced and resolved to keep his words, to obey Christ. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Keep his words. Don't let anything else entice you. Don't let anything else. Don't let the things of the world, the things that are here temporarily entice you and entrap you. When that happens, then Christ is not the focus. He's not your portion. You're not committed, fully committed to Him. We must reject the things that the world offers, all of their enticements, set those aside and say, no, I want my inheritance. I don't want any inheritance, just any meager and mere inheritance that people can give me. I don't want their material things. I want you, and I want to keep your word. Verse 58, I entreated your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. Because God is his portion, he now says, I entreat, I plead with you, I plead or entreat you 
to have your favor. I want your grace with all my heart. I ask for this. I ask for the grace of God, since all things originate from Him, why, not pr why pray to anyone else, and why not pray and entreat God? Why not be imploring Him to have His favor come down to us? James 1.17 For every good thing bestowed, and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing, every favorable thing, every gracious thing comes from God. Therefore, plead with God, entreat God, seek Him with our whole heart for Him to be gracious to us according to His Word. When, God said, when God's Word says that He will be with us, when God's Word says that He will give us His Holy Spirit, when it says in Luke eleven thirteen, for example, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When the Bible says things like this, that God will provide for our needs, and that God will give us His Holy Spirit, and God will give us His presence, when He has these many promises in the Word, why not ask God according to those promises? That's what He says here. Be gracious to me according to your Word. As God has promised, as God has declared, Ask Him, plead with Him to intervene and to be a blessing to us so that we have His favor permeating our life. We have His grace permeating. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Well, let's ask with right motives. And if we ask with right motives, we ask and God will give. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And let him ask in faith. So ask in faith, not as a double-minded man. Ask in faith. Ask God for wisdom. Ask Him for whatever His Word says He will give to His people. And ask with the right motive, and God will grant it. David knows this. We all should know this. Why is it that we will not pray to God like this? The Bible says pray without ceasing. The, the Bible says pray at all times in the Spirit. When it says this, why don't we pray to God whenever, whenever we can in order for Him to be gracious to us? Don't spend our mind and spend our time with frivolous and temporary things. Things that are really useless and really will not benefit us. Pray to God for His grace. Seek it, entreat it, that it might come to us. He wants to pray, he wants us to pray this way, and he wants to answer according to his word. 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. And 60. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Now, when he asked God for God's grace, he also knows he has to consider his ways. He has to consider how God's grace is going to help him, how God's grace is going to change him and transform him. So he says he considers his ways. He examines what good things he's doing, and he wants to do even better. And he examines what bad things or wrong or evil things he's doing, and he wants to overcome them. He does both. He considers his ways, and then whatever he considers his ways and matches them to the Word of God, 
he turns his feet to your testimonies. He considers the way he lives. He considers his thoughts. He considers his words and his actions. He considers his values. He considers his ambitions. He considers the way he's always done things. And he halts. He halts and hastens. He halts on what he's doing. And he hastens to do the will of God. He says, wait, wait a minute here. That's not right. Wait a minute, I know what the Bible says. Or I just learned what the Bible says on this or that. And I know I'm not living that way. So I'm going to turn my feet away from the wrong. And I'm going to do the right. I'm going to hasten to do it. I'm not going to do it whenever I feel like it. I'm not going to do it in a week from now. I'm not going to do it a, a month from now. I'm not going to do it ten years from now. I'm going to do it now. I will hasten to know God, to love God, and to follow Him in every part of my life. No delay. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to hasten. Now is the time to have salvation and to grow in that salvation. We don't know how much longer we will live. Many people are here today and they disappear the next day. This happens to many, many people. So we cannot have false confidence that we will have tomorrow or we will have five years or ten years from now. We won't have that. We may not have that. So now is the time to consider our ways. Now is the time to rectify all that's wrong and make it right so that we walk in the path of God. Don't we want to know God and don't we want to please Him? We should want this in a very quick, in a very enthusiastic way to run after God. 61. Verse 61. What will happen when we seek after God? 61 says, The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. It will happen repeatedly in our life that when we are enthusiastically hastening after the things of God, that we will say something or do something that will come across the, the path of the wicked, and then they will have their cords, they will have their ropes, they will have their traps, and they will encircle us, and they will seek to destroy us. This happened to David many times. It happened with King Saul, it happened with uh, Absalom, it happened with some of the enemies in certain cities and villages, that they would secretly go and tell Saul that David is here. The wicked would encircle him many times. This happened, why? Did David sin against Saul? Did David sin against the inhabitants of any of those towns and villages? No. Did David sin against Absalom? No. But all these people, they instigated these kinds of things against David because they didn't want his righteousness. They didn't want what he represented. They didn't want what he said. They, don't, they didn't want what he did. And they didn't like it how the favor of other people were on David. Remember the song after the battle? of the Philistines and the, and the death of the Goliath. The women went out celebrating and dancing and singing and it says, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Remember they sang that? Did David do wrong to slay ten thousands? No. But Saul was jealous of David and he saw that the people knew that David was a better warrior than Saul. And then he thought, David is going to secretly and maliciously undermine me. When none of that was true. 
This is what wicked people do. They, they encircle, they set up these traps because they themselves have a problem, but then they impose that problem on somebody else. That's what Saul did with David. David was not trying to undermine Saul. He was trying to support Saul. But Saul was suspicious and undermined David. Like this. This is what will happen. When we are seeking after God, when we are zealous for the things of God, then there will be people who will nitpick and fault find with us and make something that's nothing out of things we do and be suspicious of us. But what should our response be? What was David's response? David practiced righteousness and left it up to God. And this is what he says here in verse 61. But I have not forgotten your law. He's not so bewildered and perplexed. He is not so anxious that when wicked people are doing these things, that he is erratic or that he goes mad or he's full of anxiety. Nothing like that happens. What does he do? He does not forget the law of God. He says, well, wait a minute. They're doing this, but what should my response be to that? What should I do? The best example would be with King Saul. He fled for his life because his life was in jeopardy. But also, whenever he had the opportunity to do evil or to slay Saul, and he did that, he had that opportunity at least twice in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. What did he do? He said, I'm not going to kill him. I have the opportunity to kill him, but may the Lord avenge me. May the Lord avenge me. May the Lord see. May the Lord know that I am righteous and he'll take care of you, King Saul, in due time. But I'm not going to lay my hand on you. I'm not going to do wrong to you. He did not return evil for evil. And he did not seek to destroy King Saul. He let God kill Saul eventually. And God killed Saul through the weapons of the Philistines. Because Saul went into battle later. And the Philistines were in battle against Israel. Saul was in battle. And somebody shot his bow at random and it came and it struck Saul and he died. So that's what God does when we are faithful to keep his law. Keep his law. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And in that case, Saul was separated from David and God took care of Saul and David was not a culprit in that whatsoever. David was clear and clean in the sight of God. Why? Because he did not forget the law of God. Obey God no matter how the wicked treat us. Verse 62. 62. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Now he's talking about this time in the night. In the time in the night when sin often happens. He is saying that at midnight, when that happens, I shall rise to give thanks to you. He might be asleep. He might be startled from his sleep. He might be, uh, it might be difficult sleep and he's awake. But when he has those thoughts, those waking thoughts, he does not go to sin. What does he do? He goes to thanksgiving. The moment he has this habit, the moment he is alert and awake at night. He knows he should be doing nothing except praising and thanking God. 
He perhaps also was doing this as he, uh, as his, he says in Psalm 63, that he has night watches. So as a military man and as a soldier, he would have a night watch. And during the night watches, having his rounds of t- t- being on guard as a soldier, he would have at that time not been shirking from his duties, not derelict in anything like that, but keeping alert. And while he's keeping alert, he is praying to God and thanking God about what's going on, even though he's a soldier and running away and hiding from his enemies often. He's thanking God. An example of this would be Acts 16. Another example would be Acts chapter 16. When Saul, in Acts 16, Acts 16, 25, when Paul or Saul and Silas were imprisoned, they were mistreated, they were thrown into the prison, they were beaten, they were in stocks. And notice what it says. Acts 16, 25. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And God miraculously brings about their release and also the salvation of the jailer and his household as a result of this. In the middle of the night, at midnight it says, that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They could easily at night have been embittered and anxious about their circumstances. They could have been doing those kinds of things. They could have even been working against the other prisoners and even the jailer. They could have been plotting to get their escape by doing harm to the jailer and the other prisoners. But they weren't doing anything like that. What did they do in the middle of the night? They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're praising God even though they're going through a terrible Uh, circumstance. They are mistreated and they are put in prison. That's the kind of thing that if we do not forsake the law of God, we know who God is, we will give thanks to Him and will praise Him. The verse in 62 also says why He does this. Because of your righteous ordinances. I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Why is it that they can thank God? David, Paul, and Silas. Why is it that they can praise God? Because of God's righteous ordinances. As David trusted God to take care of Saul and his other enemies, in the same way, Paul and Silas trusted God to take care of their enemies. In the meantime, they were supposed to be faithful. But they trusted the righteous ordinances or the righteous judgments of God. They knew that in due time, whoever perpetrated evil they would receive the penalty of God. There is a day of judgment that everyone must face. Either we are in Christ, and there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, or we will not be in Christ, and God will inflict His punishment upon all who perpetrated evil against the people of God. He will do so. And they trust that. They know that. They wait for the day of judgment, because they know God's righteous ordinances will be completely universally revealed. The righteous will know that, and the wicked will know that, and the wicked will have no power. They will have no wisdom. They will have no, uh, no attorney, no advocate to help them in that day. They will only have condemnation. So David says, because of your righteous ordinances, 
I have this peace. I will, I will not do wrong. I will give you thanks, and I'll just trust that in your righteous judgment to take care of my enemies on the day of judgment. Verse 63. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. He identifies who his friends are. He identifies his close relationships. He says he's a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. He finds friendships with those who fear God just as he fears God. With those who obey God, just as he obeys God. He's not trying to find friends who are friends for some fickle reasons. They like to paint like I like to paint. They like to hunt like I like to hunt. They like to read novels like I like to read novels. They like this or that sports just like I like those sports. Not for those reasons. They have, he, he, has, he is making friends based on whether they fear God and whether they keep His precepts, obey Him. He knows how, the value of this. I believe He knows the value of this for a couple of reasons. One reason is He knows He Himself needs it. He Himself needs this. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It's good to have God-fearers around because we need them. We need them for our own benefit. We also are encouraged by them. We're encouraged by them because when we have God-fearers, it builds us up in the faith. It builds us up in the faith. We have an example in Apollos, Apollos, an early disciple in Acts chapter 18, when he was proclaiming the gospel, he became an encouragement to the others. Notice what it says of Apollos. Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, 24. 18, 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived... He, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Notice there. He's mighty in the scriptures and he greatly helped those who believed through grace. And how did he do so? For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He knew the scriptures and he knew the gospel, he believed in the gospel, he refuted the Jews, and when he did that, the fellow believers who are witnessing this, who are around him, because he keeps the precepts of God, they want to keep the precepts of God. Because he knows the precepts of God, they want to know the precepts of God, and he greatly encourages the believers who had believed through grace. This is the kind of thing that David knew would happen. Now also, the benefit of 
Companionship with God-fearers and God-obeyers is that we stay away from people who will drag us down into the mud. We stay away from those who are loosey and goosey with their Christianity. We stay away from people who will not help us press on and press forward in the things of God. The scriptures say in Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The companion of fools will suffer harm, but if we walk with wise men, we will become wise. We will learn from them, we'll grow with them. Acts, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So, it's easy to be corrupted by hanging around the wrong people. Therefore, hang around the right people so that we can, through humility, learn from them and even encourage them by our presence. And then lastly, we have verse 64. Verse 64, The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. He knows that when he looks around and looks around throughout the earth, that God's loving kindness is everywhere. It's full of it. This was established when God created the world. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God created the world, He fully and amply supplied the needs of Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. He gave them every tree of the garden that they might eat freely, generously, and abundantly. This is what He gave them. And, he, and David knows that even now, God continues to sustain His people and even the unbelievers with the things of God in a material sense. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. In Matthew 5, 45, Christ says this of the Lord. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God sends rain and the sun for those who are good and evil, for those who are righteous and unrighteous. In this sense, God has shown Himself to be loving and kind and gracious to all mankind throughout all generations. He provides things that they need. He gives it to men. He gives it to animals. He even provides these for the plants. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, If God provides for the lilies of the field, for the grass of the field, and even for the birds, will He not provide for you, O men of little faith? Of course He will. He'll provide for us. Out of His bounty, He'll give us all that we need. Now, since this is true of the material world, will it not be true of the spiritual world? After all, God is invisible. God is spirit. God has made us in His image. He's given us a soul. He desires for us to seek for unseen things, eternal and heavenly things. Will He not do so? David's point is, since I know with my own eyes and ears and all of my senses, I know that God is good to the righteous and the wicked, then I need to depend on Him for all that I need spiritually. 
He proves it to all of us physically so that we might do it and understand spiritually. We need to know the, the difference or the connection between the material world and the immaterial world, the visible world and the invisible world. Therefore, if God is so mighty and great and powerful that He provides like this, He naturally says in verse 64, Teach me your statutes. Teach me. I don't know. I need to know. In verse 18, He said, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I don't know all I need to know from your word, Lord. I don't understand everything I need to understand from your word. I don't know how to guide and live my life on the straight path unless I know what your word says and I understand it correctly. I don't want to veer to the right or to the left. I don't want to go off on any byways. I want to go on the highway of holiness. This is what we should say when we know that our only source of abundance, spiritual abundance, comes from God. We should humbly say, Lord, teach me. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you can build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? That, and where is the place of my resting place? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. There too, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Isaiah declares, like David, he knows that God is the creator, and that God cannot be contained in a house of worship, in a temple. God is the one who provides for all those things, for man to be able to build, and for man to be able to reap, and for him to eat. He knows all that. But where does God show favor? Where does His blessing reside? In the one who says, teach me your statutes. To Him, but to this one will I look. To Him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. When the word of God says something, whatever it is on any subject, it is true and right. And we should say, Lord, teach me. I want to know what your word says. I don't care what the traditions say. I don't care what people say. I don't care what scholars say. I don't care what so-and-so says. I want to know what you say in your word. Teach me your statutes. That's what we should do. There, it shows true humility when we understand our relationship to God in this way. Will we seek God? Will we seek Him with great zeal? And will we hasten to do the word of God with great zeal. Let's do so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.